In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Breathe in us, O Holy Spirit, that all our thoughts may be holy. Act in us, O Holy Spirit, that all our work, too, may be holy. Draw our hearts, O Holy Spirit, that we love but what is holy. Strengthen us, O Holy Spirit, to defend all that is holy. Guard us then, O Holy Spirit, that we always may be holy. Our Lady, Seat of Wisdom, pray for us. St. John the Beloved, pray for us. St. Joseph, pray for us. St. Thomas More and St. John Fisher, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for being here. It's late on a Friday. So, the official title of this talk is The History of the Papacy. The unofficial title of this talk is Why We Should Love the Bad Popes. What's going out to you is uh, a very unhelpful handout. <laughs> Handouts usually give you a summary of the talk, maybe a outline, give you an opportunity to be reminded after the fact of what, um, what was said. Instead, what I'm giving you is a worksheet. So you can go along, and as we go through the history of the church, which if accomplished in 60 minutes means um, every year gets two seconds. Um, you can fill in the names of each pope as we, as we make progress. In the Cathedral of Siena in Italy, there's a beautiful altar on top of which was placed an enormous work of art by the Italian artist Duccio di Boninsegna. It's probably the most significant, maybe the most beautiful, perhaps the best, that's your opinion, artistic depiction of the life of Christ and the mysteries of the life of the Blessed Virgin Mary. It measured about 17 feet wide, so wider than this podium, than this platform, and about 17 feet tall, so taller than that curtain behind me. And from a distance, all you would have seen is gold, but as you get closer, you can see that the paintings, almost in an, in an iconic style, some of the very familiar images that you already have in mind of the, the Lord calling the disciples on the Sea of Galilee after the resurrection um, may very well come from this enormous collection. When it was completed and ready to be brought into the just barely brand new cathedral in Siena, it was, it was processed through the town of Siena almost like a Eucharistic procession. And once on the altar, it made absolutely clear that this gorgeous cathedral exists for one purpose, to proclaim the mystery of Christ. Now up above the floor, at the, in the sense at the beginning of the, the vaulted ceiling, so at the top of the columns that line the, the nave, are these enormous busts of each pope, each pope up until that time, so from St. Peter to Pope Lucius III. 
And the depiction of each pope isn't necessarily historically accurate. That's not the point. There's no attempt to make the, the holy popes look better than the unholy popes. Underneath their names, there's, or underneath their, their images, underneath the busts, is just their name with no mention of saint or blessed or martyr or even um, the great. Just their names. The popes are looking down, basically. Some are looking forward, some are looking backwards. Some have a peaceful look on their face, some seem to be in some degree of distress. But what's very clear is that the popes are there to witness to the mystery. The reason why we're in the church is because of Christ. The role of the pope is is to verify that this is the true mystery. This is the truth. One of the early Roman nicknames for the pope is Pontiff, Pontifex. The Pontifex was the bridge inspector, not the bridge builder, certainly not the bridge. And Romans take bridges very seriously, especially in ancient times. There's a, a narrowing of the Tiber River in Rome where there's an island There's a religious house there and a hospital. And because of that island, it made for an easier way to cross from one side of the river to the other with two small bridges instead of one long bridge. The bridge that connects that island to the center of the city of Rome is over 2,000 years old and still can handle trucks. So the Romans know their bridges. What I would like to suggest to you is that as you learn about the history of the popes and as you teach it to others, that you do so with one reason included among your other reasons, to instill love for the papacy. As we, as we learn the history of the popes, we can, we can learn ancient history, we can learn medieval history. We can connect it to the various councils that took place and the various saints that lived and died. We can connect it to historical events that coincided and impacted the church. All that's useful, very useful. Once you have in mind a framework for the passage of time, it's much easier to connect other events to it. But despite all the utilitarian reasons for learning the history of the popes and learning their names, we learn, to, we learn to love them. We learn to love that they are our fathers, that God gave us a father. On Father's Day, we celebrated fatherhood. Uh, we especially celebrated our, our favorite and dear fathers. I don't know my great-grandfather, I have to take it on trust that my great-great-grandfather came from Dublin. I know that there must have been a great-great-great-grandfather and a great-great-great-great-grandfather because if there weren't a father, I, I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't exist. And so the sequence of the history of the papacy 
is a, is a given. We wouldn't be here if Christ hadn't established the church and if Christ hadn't guaranteed that the Holy Spirit would guide the church and speak through her. The original purpose of the papacy, we can already hear at the Last Supper. Our Lord told Peter that the devil had promised, um, that the devil had intended to sift him like wheat. But the Lord would confirm him afterwards, and his role would be to confirm the brethren, to feed the sheep, to tend the flock, to keep them together. He wasn't necessarily the primary teacher, but he was to be not just the prince of the apostles, he was to be the source of unity. As we look at the history of the popes, very few of them were significant theologians. As much as we prize the writings of saints, we should prize even more the writings of the doctors of the church. And of all the doctors of the church, how many of them were popes? Just two. The role of the, of, the, of the Pope isn't to be the primary teacher. It's to be the one who verifies, yes, that's the truth. Yes, this is the mystery. Like the, like the busts of the Popes in Siena, the ones who draw our attention to the real purpose, to Christ. And so sometimes it doesn't, doesn't even matter who the Pope is, but what matters is that we have a Pope. I don't know who my great-great-grandfather was, but it's important that I had one. So as we begin walking or strolling or speeding through the centuries, um, we'll, I'll, I'll stop at a few points and give you um, in, uh, some insights into the, the, the need for popes for us to pray for them. From the late 800s to the late 1800s, a thousand years, half the history of the church, only four canonized popes. Four in a thousand years. Most of the popes need us to pray for them. And that's where a lot of this began and uh, some side projects too. Um, and an occasional homily and a frequent conversation in the confessional. Um, Pray to the good popes that we know can intercede for us in heaven. Pray for all the popes. Most of the popes still need you to pray for them. And we do so effectively when it's with love and gratitude. Becoming pope is a death sentence. It certainly was for Peter, Linus, Cletus, Clement, Evaristus, Alexander, Sixtus, Telesphorus, Hygienus, Pius, Antarius, Anicetus, rather. Soter, Eleutherius, I'm going too quickly. You're, you're having trouble writing down all the names, right? Um, that's okay. Try to keep up. And Victor and Zephyrinus. Callistus, Callistus, Pope at the beginning of the third century. He, under his papacy, we saw uh, the the church acquire its first piece of property south of the city of Rome. It's now the catacombs of Callistus. Named that because he acquired that property. He put a deacon in charge of it, 
His name was Ponchin. And at that time, there was the first antipope. So you see underneath where it says St. C, right, St. Callistus, there's a line there that says St. H, but no number next to it. So the numbers on the left side, that corresponds to the official uh, account of the popes according to the Holy See. That's, those are the, the sequence of the popes, the numbering of the popes according to the church, according to the Vatican right now. St. H was actually a, an anti-pope, right? There's, a, there's an asterisk next to the year, 217. He claimed to be the Bishop of Rome, and his great controversy had to do with whether or not baptized Christians who had been found to violate the Sixth Commandment in grave sin could be absolved in the sacrament of penance. Hippolytus was one of the first proponents of this schismatic and eventually heretical group, became known as Novationism, the, uh, the second anti-pope underneath the 21st pope. That um, line is blank. That's for Novation. The, the group eventually got its name from the later anti-pope. They were insistent, they were belligerent, that baptized Christians who had committed sins against the Sixth Commandment could not be forgiven. Which means the, it means the question hadn't been settled yet. For, for 200 years, um, there, wasn't, there wasn't controversy about it. Gives you, perhaps gives you reason to ponder how in the early church, Christians simply referred to each other as saints. It also helps to bolster your faith and, and reinvigorate you when there's the threat of death from time to time because of your faith. Callistus was the first pope to declare that, yes, indeed, these people, these baptized Christians who had committed the sin of adultery, they could be forgiven in the sacrament of penance. Hippolytus wasn't easily appeased, and his anti-papacy, you could see, lasted for three popes against Urban and against Pontian. The same Pontian who was the deacon who tended the property for Callistus. Well, there came into Rome a Roman emperor named Maximinus Thrax. And Maximinus Thrax persecuted the church, not by persecuting the believers, but by persecuting the leaders of the church. I misspoke. Not by persecuting the believers, is that what I said? But by persecuting the leaders of the church. And so guess what Maximinus Thrax did? Not only did he send Pontian, the pope, to exile in Sardinia, but guess what, Hippolytus, since you claim to be bishop of Rome too, you get to go to exile too. Sardinia was certain death. There, there, was, there was not to be any expectation of returning from there alive. And so some interesting things happened. Pontian was the first pope to resign. He knew that the church needed a pope, that the church of Rome needed a bishop, and that he was going to his death. And so before he left for Sardinia, he resigned his office as bishop of Rome. And so Antarius took up his place afterwards, didn't live very long. I think Maximinus Thrax just killed him. 
But Pontian and Hippolytus, the Pope and the Antipope, or the former Pope and the Antipope, went to exile together. Not knowing their conversations, we do know that Hippolytus died repentant. And not only died in the state of grace, but died in a state of holiness. And so eventually, Antirius, um, Fabian, Cornelius, it was Pope Fabian who said those, those bodies of those saints need to come back from Sardinia and we're going to bury them in the catacombs of St. Callistus where Pontian used to be the deacon in charge of the property. St. Hippolytus, the first antipope, is a great example of how um, the saints, namely St. Pontian, don't give up. Every, every soul is made to know Christ and to love Christ uh, and to be happy with him now and forever. There are many examples uh, of that same type of transformation of grace when it seems beyond all hope. And then we have Cornelius, Lucius, Stephen, Sixtus. His name is Lucius, not Luscious. Um, there were several of them. There were four, St. Luci. And um, depending on your translation or depending on who's writing the history, sometimes his name is rendered Lucifer, but it's, that's not fair. That's not even, that wouldn't have been his name in, in Latin anyway. Um, but it does come from light, right? Um, and then... L-U-C-I-U-S. That's how we spell it in English, anyway. Um, and then you've got Dionysius, Felix, Eutychian, Caius, Marcellinus, right? Then we start the 4th century. Marcellus, Eusebius, Malchiades, Sylvester, um, Sylvester is very important. He was the pope when Constantine was building churches. So Sylvester was the pope who was consecrating the original St. Peter's Basilica. Um, his feast day is New Year's Eve. Um, and so in German, uh, instead of saying New Year's Eve, you just celebrate Sylvester, right? Marcus, Julius, and then Liberius. Liberius was the first pope not to be canonized a saint. Ironically, he's canonized a saint in the Eastern Orthodox Church, not in the Roman Catholic Church. Um, this is the beginning of popes being caught up in the power center of the empire shifting to Constantinople, and the emperor in Constantinople exerting force, trying to exert force over the church and even over the pope personally. That didn't always go very well. So this is at the time of St. Athanasius. And a time of great, um, great turmoil. Pope Liberius sent an emissary to a council. Usually the pope didn't attend a council. He sent a delegate or a legate to attend in his name. Usually the pope would send letters that would be read. And the Pope's letters weren't read at that council, um, as happened to Pope St. Leo the Great and quite a few others. 
the Pope's legate was even coerced into signing a condemnation of St. Athanasius. Liberius wasn't um, did not seem to be confused about the truth um, and even spent many years in exile in defense of the Orthodox faith. Um, so eventually he suffered greatly even if at first um, he wasn't effective in um, proclaiming Athanasius a champion of the faith. Damasus, Sericius, Anastasius. And then we get Innocent, Zosimus, Boniface. That's a great combination of letters. I-Z-B, Innocent, it's really easy to remember. Innocent, Zosimus, Boniface. And then Celestine. Celestine Sixtus, St. Leo the Great. Uh, Leo the Great's awesome. If you go to his tomb in St. Peter's Basilica, it means you're walking forward. And then when you get to the great uh, altar in the Baldacchino, you're going to angle off to the left and go to the far corner of St. Peter's Basilica. And there you'll see over St. Leo's grave the only bas-relief, the only sculpture that sort of comes out of the wall over his tomb. And it shows Pope St. Leo the Great pointing up into the sky. He's just emerged from a tent where he had the meeting with Attila the Hun. Now, in this case, it was, the, it was the Roman governor who urged Pope Leo to please go and to be part of a delegation that would meet Attila the Hun north of the city, who was certain to destroy Rome. So it wasn't the only one, and it wasn't even at his own initiative, but he was willing to go. Because obviously, the Pope isn't just concerned about the ecclesiastical properties that are under his care. He, he's concerned about the world. He's concerned about culture. He's concerned about people's living conditions. So he went, and apparently it was successful. History bears that out. The bas-relief shows St. Leo pointing up in the sky. Attila the Hun is turning around and heading back north, and up coming out of the sky are St. Peter and St. Paul. St. Paul has his sword in hand. He always has a sword, right, because martyrs are depicted with the instrument of their death. So St. Paul always has a sword because he was beheaded. St. Peter even has a sword in this, in this sculpture over the tomb of Pope St. Leo the Great. That was 542. Great moment, or 452. And the first doctor of the church among the popes. Then St. Hilarius, or St. Hilary, Simplicius, Felix III, Gelasius, Anastasius, Symmachus, and the second Pope Anastasius, or Anastasius and then St. Symmachus. Then we get to a really interesting period, um, the 6th century. Um, where do we start? Hermisdus John, Felix Boniface John. You can feel the tension rising, right? Boniface II, um, was a um, pope who tried to do what other popes had done. He tried to say who his successor was going to be. Um, he wanted Vigilius to be his successor. Um, this, your skin should crawl when I say that name. Um, 
But the people of Rome rejected that out of hand. Absolutely rejected the notion that Vigilius would be the next pope. His reputation was, was already well established. In Rome, even to this day, you'll see every once in a while uh, ancient carvings or even in metalwork, the, the letters SPQR. Have you seen that SPQR? And Latin students know that that stands for Senatus Popolusque Romanus. So the Senate and the people of Rome, SPQR. Italians who are not from Rome have a very derogatory way of, of assigning other words to those letters. Um, it's not that derogatory, but still not appropriate for here. I want to suggest other words to replace Senatus Popolusque Romanum. And that is Sancti Peccatoresque Romane, the saints and the sinners of Rome. There's so many times when the people of Rome, the clergy of Rome, just rose up and said, no, he is not going to be pope, or no, you cannot, you have to go. Your, your life is out of hand. Remember that the, what, was, what was praised in ancient times wasn't just simply the the person of the Bishop of Rome, but the church in Rome. In the same way that all the faithful have been endowed with the Holy Spirit, and it's never the case that all the faithful could be wrong about a matter of faith. We see so many of the other churches, even the church in Constantinople, praising not just St. Peter and not just the Bishop of Rome, but the church in Rome. So to, to bear that out, let me read to you just a little bit, not all of this, but just a little bit. This is the class that I taught this past year to my homeschoolers on the, the history of the papacy. And um, I'm just going to read to you things that have been said by the Patriarch of Constantinople, beginning with St. John Chrysostom. Peter himself, the head or crown of the apostles, the first in the church, the friend of Christ who received a revelation, not from man, but from the Father, as the Lord bears witness to him, saying, Blessed art thou, this very Peter. And when I named Peter, I named that unbroken rock, that firm foundation, the great apostle, first of the disciples, the first called and the first who obeyed. He was guilty, even denying the Lord. Peter, the leader of the choir of apostles, the mouth of the disciples, the pillar of the church, the buttress of the faith, the foundation of the confession, the fisherman of the universe. St. Proclus, Patriarch of Constantinople in 434. Peter, the Cordophaeus of the disciples and the one set over the apostles. Art not thou he that did say, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God? Thou, Bariona, son of the dove, hast thou seen so many miracles, and art thou still but Simon, a hearer? He appointed thee the key bearer of heaven, and as though not yet laid aside thy fisherman's clothing. John the sixth, Patriarch of Constantinople in 715, the Pope of Rome, the head of the Christian priesthood, whom in Peter the Lord commanded to confirm his brethren. St. Nicephorus, Patriarch of Constantinople from the end of the 8th century to, through the beginning of the 9th, without whom the Romans, presiding in the 7th council, a doctrine brought forward in the church could not, even though confirmed by canonical degrees or by ecclesiastical usage, 
ever obtain full approval or currency. For it is they, the popes of Rome, who have had assigned to them the rule and sacred things, and who have received into their hands the dignity of headship among the apostles. The saints and the sinners of Rome, Sancti Peccatores Quae Romane, said no to Vigilius. He's got to go. And so Boniface uh, relented. He retracted that, and Vigilius knew that his um, usefulness was quite limited at that point. John II followed, and then a great hero, a pope you've never heard of, I bet, St. Agapetus I. Anyone ever heard of Pope St. Agapetus? Total stud. So, Agapetus was like Pope St. Leo. He was sent north, um, not by the governor of Rome, well, in a, in a distant way, the governor of Rome, by an Ostrogoth king, right? They ruled from Ravenna. And they, he knew that Belisarius was forming an army, and the Byzantines were going to come down from Constantinople and invade Italy. And so the Ostrogoth king pleaded with the Pope, go north and try to prevent this from happening. Of course, what, the Pope doesn't want destruction. He doesn't want you know, this to happen. These are his people. So he does go to Constantinople. By that time, Belisarius was had already formed his army and there wasn't much to do about preventing the invasion but he stayed in Constantinople quite a while and became uh, deeply involved in the life of the church in Constantinople really heading off even worse problems than an invading army the patriarch of Constantinople at that time was a heretic and so the Pope convinced the Emperor to depose the Patriarch of Constantinople and then ordained the next Patriarch of Constantinople, the first Bishop of Rome, to do that. This was getting caught up in a political and social and religious controversy in Constantinople that pitted the Arians versus the Monothelites versus the Orthodox Christians. The Arians, again, when I say Arianism, your skin should just crawl. Arians believe that Jesus isn't really God. So if you go to Ravenna and you see the, the baptistries that were built by the Orthodox Christians, you know, the real Christians, you'll see in these octagonal baptistries that are just outside the churches, in the ceiling, mosaics of John the Baptist baptizing our Lord in the, in the Jordan River. And our Lord is strong and he's and he's in charge. Even though he's the one being baptized, he's, he's obviously the protagonist. Well, in the baptistries that were built by the Arians, and there's several of them, and in Ravenna, these churches and baptistries are in perfect condition. The mosaics are just as rich as they were uh, back then. The Arian baptistries show John the Baptist being this strong adult male with the, you know, all the muscular features of a strong adult male. And Jesus, in the Jordan River, being baptized by John is this pudgy, oafish teenager who just seems to be like, what's going on? Who am I? Why are you doing this? 
right? That's the perfect depiction of how Arians understand Christ. Absolutely despicable. They, they believe that there was a time before which Jesus ever existed, that he um, came to exist um, at a point in time rather than being the only begotten Son of God who exists from all eternity. He is the incarnation of God. So against the despicable, right, spit on the ground right now, despicable Arian heresy, there were those who pushed back against it and they wanted to reinforce the unity within Christ, right? There's no, there's, there's no tension between his being divine and being human. There's no, uh, there's, there's no uh, emergence of, of some, uh, something distinct and at odds with his divinity. And so the Monothelites, just like the Monophysites, tried to argue that there's only one will in Jesus, right? There's no, there's, there's no tension. There's no contradiction in them. There's no distinction between the human will and the divine will. It's just one will. Well, sorry, that's a heresy too. It's, it's well-intentioned. So when you hear the word Monothelite or Monophysite, you shouldn't, your skin shouldn't crawl, right? You should understand, yeah, sometimes I understand that People go a little overboard. They oversimplify things for the sake of contradicting a, a, you know, a mistaken notion. It's a good caution for us, too, that when we're explaining something, uh, when someone has a question, it's good to be precise. Um, it, and it's never a good idea to oversimplify. Um, and the simpler the person, the younger the person is that you're teaching, the more important it is to be really precise. Because a simple mind won't be able to handle a nuance down the road or a retraction or a recasting of the argument. It, really, it's very important to be, to be clear. That's why so many of our formulas that have been given to us have been tested over the centuries. They're the kind of formula, formulas that we can use as five-year-olds and as 50-year-olds and as 90-year-olds. They... they they never, we can expound on them, but they, they never need to be, they never need to be nuanced. So the Monothelites, they were mistaken. Well, the emperor and the empress, they were uh, at odds. That shouldn't be too much of a surprise. Uh, the emperor had just deposed the patriarch of Constantinople in favor of an orthodox rather than a Monothelite patriarch at the, at the behest of the bishop of Rome, Right? Who's his name? Pope Agapetus I. Pope Saint Agapetus. Can you say that name? Agapetus. Total stud. Agapetus I. Well, Theodora, the Empress Theodora, she was none too pleased because her, her political faction in Constantinople were all Monothelites. And so it was, it was her patriarch that was just, you know, her choice as patriarch was just um, demoted. Um, have you ever heard the expression keep your friends close and your enemies closer right so St. Agapetus was a saint um, he might have made one mistake in order to get Vigilius out of Rome he sent Vigilius to Constantinople so Vigilius got to know the Monothelites really well and Agapetus returned to Rome his successor, Silvarius, um, is the last, second to last martyr 
in the history of the church among the popes. Pope St. Martin I, I think, is the last. I could be wrong. Um, Silverius was killed by whom? By Belisarius' army that came down and invaded Italy eventually. They were sort of delayed, but eventually they got around to doing their business. They deposed Pope St. Silverius. They didn't just depose him, they exiled him, and he starved to death. And the whole plan was to put Vigilius in the chair of Peter and to make him the Bishop of Rome so that the Monothelite heresy could be declared the teaching of the church. This was the revenge of the Empress Theodora. Vigilius, you see it right there, V, right? Not Saint V, V, Pope 59. V, Pope Vigilius. Is your skin crawling? I hope it is. Pope Vigilius then, he, he didn't follow through on the plan because he's, he's Pope. He can't declare heresy. Now, he wasn't a saint. He didn't, he didn't die a martyr. He didn't suffer heroically. But um, this was a pope who was made pope, whose predecessor was killed in order for a heresy to be declared the teaching of the church. And mm, the plan failed. I mean, they went to great lengths. They, how many people died? How many people were killed in, in pursuit of this plan? Um, that's, um, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. That, that's even more impressive than Attila the Hun turning around and not sacking Rome in 452. So, I hope you have new devotion to Pope Agapetus I, Pope St. Agapetus I. Vigilius, uh, guess what? There was no other pope who took the name Vigilius. Surprise, surprise, there's no Pope Vigilius II. Um, Pelagius, or Pelagius, was the next one. John, Benedict, Pelagius II, the last Pelagius, and then Pope St. Gregory the Great. Total stud. And the second and the last doctor of the church among the popes. End of the 6th century. we got to fast forward. It's 814. Sabinian, Boniface, Boniface, Deodatus, Boniface, Honorius. Honorius is, occupies a special place um, he inadvertently was caught up in um, that whole monothelite problem. He wrote a letter to the Patriarch of Constantinople, which basically sounded really monothelite. It was personal correspondence. It wasn't a papal bull. It wasn't a teaching that was proclaimed. Um, but he was condemned as a heretic by a later council. Now, um, later popes clarified that Honorius was being condemned not for teaching heresy, but for failing to teach the truth. And again, it wasn't in any official document. Um, but, you know, he wrote it. We know he wrote it. So there you have it, Honorius I. Severinus, John, Theodore, Martin, Eugene, Vitalian, Adeodatus, Donus, which is one letter from being Pope Donut. Can you imagine how awesome that would be if we had had a Pope Donut? But... <laughs> Pope Donus, and Agatho Leo, and St. Benedict, then John, Conon, or Conan, there was a Pope Conan, C-O-N-O-N, Pope Conan, um, not a barbarian, and then St. Sergius, John, John, Sicinius, Constantine, Gregory, Gregory, Zachary, Stephen, now, right there between Pope 91 and Pope 92, um, there's an S, there should be two S's. 
There was a pope who was elected, Pope Stephen, and he would have been Pope Stephen II, but he died before he was consecrated. Um, So he never really became the Bishop of Rome. He was elected to become the Bishop of Rome. He never became the Bishop of Rome. So he's just skipped over. But as you go down, as as you will notice sometimes in the rendering of the names of the popes, every other... Pope Stephen after that has one Roman numeral and then another Roman numeral in parentheses out of respect for the fact that Stephen II really was elected but he never became Pope. So, so as, the, as, the, as the Vatican renders the list, Pope 92 is Pope Stephen II even though he was the third Stephen to be elected Pope. Um, that doesn't make any sense then. Uh, just go with me. Paul, Stephen, Adrian, Leo. Then we get to the notorious 9th century. Stephen, St. Pascal, Eugene, Vitalian, Gregory, Sergius, St. Leo IV, Benedict, St. Nicholas the Great. You probably never knew there was a Pope, St. Nicholas the Great. There are three popes that have been declared the Great. Manus, Leo, Gregory, Nicholas. Nicholas was the last one, 858 to 867. Then Pope Adrian II, John VIII, Marinus I, that name is identical to Martin. So the, there, there are two Pope Martins and there are two Pope Marinuses, but by the time you get to the second Pope Martin, he's Martin IV because of the, it's the same name. Never mind. St. Adrian and then Stephen V slash six. Oh boy. And then Formosus. Do you know about these guys, Stephen and Formosus? Um, when you teach the history of the popes, um, you will you will need to tailor it to your audience. Uh, some of it's going to have to be sanitized. Um, the 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 struggle between Stephen and Formosus and the popes following them um, occupy a really um, dark place in the history of the church. Fortunately, it doesn't have to do with um, terrible sins that interest HBO and the BBC and things like that. The problem started with John VIII. John VIII crowned the whole Roman emperor, Charles the Bald. Now, we've already heard about how the, the emperor in Constantinople was causing all sorts of trouble. Well, eventually the pope decided, we're going to crown an emperor. We're gonna, it's going to be the holy Roman emperor, basically the emperor of Germany, Um, But sometimes that territory spanned as far as France. The first one, right, is Charlemagne in the year 800. Um, uh, And remember how I said from the late 800s to the late 1800s, we've only had four canonized popes? My own opinion is that this um, uh, sordid history with the Holy Roman Emperor has something... Something to do with that. Pope John VIII, Pope from 872 to 882, he crowned Charles the Bald. And he um, enlisted the help of the Dukes of Spoleto. Spoleto is north of Rome. If you're going north of Rome, Orvieto is a must visit. It's about 45 minute drive north of Rome. Go another 25, 30 minutes to the east towards Assisi. You may be driving through Spoleto. Beautiful little hilltop town. Um, well, John VIII's selection of Charles the Bald 
um, was very unpopular with two people who thought they should be emperor and empress. Um, all the while, Formosus, who was a very important figure in, in, the, in Rome in those days, um, was behind the scenes trying to support the pope. He didn't like the choice of Charles the Bald, but he, he tried to support John VIII. Pope John VIII wasn't satisfied that Formosus was supportive enough, so he was um, exiled and punished. The next pope, Marinus I, that's that M at number 108, Pope 108 is Marinus I, or Martin II, however you want to number it. He restored Formosus and put him in good graces back in Rome. St. Adrian III tried to do well, but he only lasted a year. By this time, the, the, the whole Roman emperor was beyond the reach of the pope, and the pope almost was forced to crown the person who was de facto the, the most powerful local ruler. Stephen V had, didn't want to, but he did crown Duke Guido of Spoleto, the Holy Roman Emperor. Didn't want to. Formosus, the next pope, was sort of caught in the same, same boat. Um, he crowned Lambert of Spoleto, the Holy Roman Emperor. Didn't really like him. Formosus went to the lengths of enlisting a challenger to the throne and encouraged to come attack and depose the Holy Roman Emperor. And then Formosus would crown him, Arnulf, the Holy Roman Emperor. Um, that plan didn't work out very well. Um, and as a result, everyone in Spoleto hated, despised Formosus with a vitriol that lasted a century. The next pope was Boniface VI. He lasted two weeks. But he's on the list. Pope 112 for all eternity. Stephen VI, last seventh, um, restored the whole Roman emperor that Formosus had deposed. Probably not at his own choosing, but he was... His position was so weak that um, that Lambert, the deposed and now restored emperor, and his mother, Agotruda, um, forced Stephen VI to dig up Formosus, dress him up, put him on trial, declare him a heretic, cut off three of his fingers from his right hand, and throw his body in the river. Um, for the next century or so, um, well, many decades, pope after pope either were in the Stephen camp or the Formosus camp, restoring uh, their favored uh, party or declaring null and void the acts of previous popes of the other party. The person who's caught up in this um, is a pope who really needs your prayers for a lot of reasons. And he is that blank space between L and S, between Pope 118 and Pope 119. As I was in the Cathedral of Siena, taking my time, what I was doing is I was taking this list. Um, this is about the 10th list that I've had. They tend to fall apart. Um, and I always have several copies in my pocket to give away to people. Um, 
And as, as I'm underneath each pope, I'm either saying, Pope Nicholas the Great, pray for us, or I'm saying the Hail Mary for Pope Adrian II because he still needs prayers. So it's a very slow pilgrimage through the Cathedral of Siena. It's like, you know, that's about an hour, right? To pray Hail Mary for each pope that still needs prayers. And then I get to Leo the Fifth, and between Leo the Fifth and Sergius the Third, there's uh, Pope Christopher. And and I thought, wow, maybe this is just some local, you know, famous person who they always wanted to have been named Pope. And so I went back and did more research, and. Um, Realize that for a thousand years, Pope Christopher was on the official list of popes. There, there's a, a work that was um, expanded from time to time by historians through the um, second millennium, basically, called the Liber Pontificalis, the, the Book of Popes. And for a thousand years, Pope Christopher was on that list, official list of popes. Um, now, he claimed to have been pope as of October 903. Now that's not possible because um, Pope Leo V wasn't dead yet. He had been stuck in prison but was still alive. So um, by the time uh, Christopher's enemy was dead, then he could claim to be Pope. And he was accepted by the church in Rome, right? The Sancti Peccatoris Quae Romane. Um, he was, his end came quickly. He was deposed or exiled or killed in um, January of 904. Um, for a thousand years, he was on the official list of popes. And who gets fewer prayers than the person you don't think even was a pope? So I ask you to pray for Pope Christopher. He was, he was a bad dude. Um, and at least, you know, the anti-popes, um, uh, they deserve a little bit of um, mercy. Um, not that they need to be exonerated, but they, they need us to pray for them and do penance for them and uh, remember them. Because who, you know, if so few people even pray for the popes that weren't canonized, who's going to pray for the anti-popes? Um, so there's, still, there's a question mark next to Pope Christopher, but he was part of this whole battle between Formosus and Stephen and, and, and the factions going back and forth. Um, Sergius III begins... Oh boy, an episode that can't um, can't be discussed among children. Um, but let's just say there was a very significant, powerful woman who had control um, over the papacy for more than a century um, uh, between her sons and her grandsons and her great grandsons who became pope. Um, she was eventually her her death eventually was was. Uh, was brutal uh, at the hands of uh, one of her children. Um, but there is a very dark, um, dark period that really doesn't emerge until, um, until some time later. Flip the page real, real quick, and I'll point out something odd. Um, you don't, you won't see it yet, but. Um,
Actually, you don't even have to flip the page over. Um, we're looking at Pope 145. That's a B, right? See Pope 145, that's a B? That's Benedict IX. And you see Pope 147? Oh, that's Benedict IX again. And you see uh, Pope 150? That's Benedict IX for the third visit to Rome. Um, he, he was... Um, uh, he was great-grandson to that notorious woman, um, the last of her progeny to occupy the chair of Peter. He was so despised that the people of Rome kicked him out, just drove him out of the city of Rome. Um, and uh, so it, it, that, that's how that ended. Obviously, Romans have another expression, um, ubi mors, ibi spes, where there is death, there is hope, right? All of your problems will eventually die. Um, and that's, that's the first millennium. Um, I think the second millennium will have to take another hour. But what I, um, I want you to learn about John the 22nd. John the 22nd was pope from 1316 to 1334. He was, he was also, um, he was a confused soul. Um, he taught as Pope, he taught in his homilies that the souls in heaven do not have the beatific vision. Get this, John XXII was the first Pope educated by Dominicans. The Dominicans were brand new. Their first student to become Pope, John XXII, taught, you could say unofficially, never with the full force of the papacy, taught heresy. He imprisoned the theologians who dared to challenge him. He was at odds with Louis of Bavaria, the Holy Roman Emperor, who used the Pope's statements about the beatific vision to, to argue that the Pope had no authority to name bishops. So the Holy Roman Emperor started naming bishops. He even named a bishop of Rome. He, he installed an anti-Pope in opposition to John XXII. Um, But he's still pope. He still has authority to name bishops. Um, eventually, before his death, he convened a meeting of theologians, um, and he recanted his position and, and declared that, yes, in fact, the souls in heaven do have the beatific vision. Um, the next pope declared that in a, in a formal teaching, Benedictus Deus. Um, never give up. Always pray. Popes need your prayers, every last one of them. And, um, and they're our fathers. They're, we don't know if our great-grandfather was a good guy or a bad guy, but I still love him because he's mine, right? He's the father in my family. I'll pray for him until I know that he's a saint and that I can pray to him. I'm going to pray for him. So I, I urge you, learn, learn the popes um, so that you learn to love them. Good? Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.